has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alexian Taffy. It's the gender stories and Meg John minus Justin special podcast. Yay! Yay. So welcome to a very special episode of Gender Stories and the Meg, John and Justin podcast, minus Justin Hancock. And this is a very special episode because Meg, John and I were asked to do this episode for our publisher, Jessica Kingsley Publishers. And that in the UK this month, February, when you will get to listen to this episode, or maybe you'll be listening another time, but when we're taping this episode in the UK is LGBT History Month. And I also want to acknowledge that in the US right now is Black History Month. And we were asked to talk a little bit about non-binary thinking uh, because we have a new book coming out, right, Mac John? We do, uh, called Life Isn't Binary, and it's coming, out, it's coming out in May, but we are reliably informed that you can pre-order it on Amazon right now if you're excited. Um, so, yeah, we wrote this this spring last year. And we did. We've been getting it ready, and uh, we're really excited about it. It's got a forward by C.N. Lester, who is a really amazing musician and writer as well, who wrote uh, Trans Like Me. And Trans Like um, Me is available both in the UK and the US, I understand. That's right. I think um, a new version just came out in the US. So, yeah, it's an incredible book about trans um, trans in the media, and it's kind of a memoir, too. It's incredible. So, yeah, we want to we wanna promote our book today. And yeah. also talk about non-binary, but not just non-binary gender, but non-binary everything. Non-binary everything. That's what we're going to talk about. And kind of the book is about non-binary everything. We start from sexuality. We go to gender and relationship, bodies, thinking, emotions, kind of really yeah. looking um, at non-binary um, experiences in a much more comprehensive way. And yes, the book comes out in May. You can pre-order it on Amazon, or you can also ask your favorite independent bookseller to make sure they get it in May, right? That would be awesome. Or your library. It's um, really nice to get our books in the libraries as well. Yes, please do get the books in the library. Okay, that's a lot of self-promotion. I'm getting <laughs> this every time I do an episode. Um, apparently, that's how it works. Sorry, listeners. Now we're just yeah. going to go on to the content, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> So we got some questions from the marketing team at Jessica Kingsley um, around non-binary issues. And the first question is, most people will be familiar with the term non-binary in terms of gender identity. But for those listeners who aren't familiar or might have an inkling but not a full understanding, could you explain what the term means is our first question. Would you like to get started? Uh, yes. So I guess non-binary in terms of gender is a fairly new term. Um, 
uh, in terms of the history, it's maybe five to ten years. There's been a kind of what you might call a non-binary movement. And non-binary gender is a subset of transgender. So trans refers to anyone who didn't remain in the gender they were assigned at birth. And that's pretty much true of most binary people because most people are assigned either male or female at birth. And non-binary people are people who um, do not experience themselves as either male or female. Um, but I guess the really important thing to say is that it's a big umbrella you know so mm-hmm. it encompasses a lot of different experiences so some people experiences themselves as like having no gender or being a gender or gender neutral for other people they experience a gender somewhere between masculine and feminine or man and woman some people experience a bothness that they have both masculinity and femininity some people it's a, a fluid kind of move between different genders they might experience themselves as different genders at different times other people it's completely beyond that binary of men or female they feel like they've got a very different gender or their gender is much more interwoven with their sexuality or their spirituality so there's a, a real vast array isn't there of um, experiences under the umbrella of non-binary i totally agree i even wonder if um and I know because this was my initial understanding too around kind of non-binary kind of coming under the transgender umbrella. But I don't know about you, but more and more I find people who do identify as non-binary but might not necessarily identify as transgender. And my um, it's really um, kind of separate. For some people, it goes together. You know, like for myself, I'm trans and non-binary. But for some folks that would identify as non-binary but not necessarily as trans. Exactly. And I think some people also question the binary of cisgender and transgender, and that's part of why they don't see non-binary as part of trans. Or other people, they associate trans more with a certain kind of journey, maybe a medical journey that they're not taking. But then, of course, some non-binary people do take a medical um, journey as part of a transition. So, again, I think the takeaway message is it's like diverse um, and encompasses a massive range of experiences of gender, just like man encompasses a massive range of women is a massive range as well exactly it's that kind of huge vast landscape and just because somebody says like i'm non-binary doesn't mean we really understand what their identity experiences um expressions of gender might be because like you said it is so huge and encompasses so many different um identities and experiences so i don't know if that's clarifying at all or if everybody's more confused than they were but that's i think uh one of the definitions and i love what you said about in some ways um, non-binaries identities and thinking can even challenge that trans cis binary right of kind of um, around gender and I know that's one of the things we do talk about in the book and it's one of the things that when I was invited to think about the future of non-binary genders (laughs) you know I went very like sci-fi I think in that chapter because really it is challenging the whole idea of this kind of settler colonial understanding of gender as binary. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's it. It's like it, in a way it's um, Western world catching up with ways of understanding gender that have been present around the globe in many cultures for you know, a long time and which in some ways, um, yeah, the West has tried to eradicate. Um, so it's like we're, we're on the back foot and need to really think about it in terms of the history of colonialism as well. Yeah. And I think that's really important because for me, it's impossible to talk about non-binary gender and gender identities without talking about that colonial piece. Yeah. In some way, another ways in which, and 
I could be totally wrong, but in one of the ways in which I see it manifesting this kind of more colonial thinking about non-binary identities is people talking about young people changing our understanding of gender and yeah. this new thing, you know, and I'm like, I'm almost 50, you know, and there's other folks mm-hmm. who embrace the non-binary identity who are kind of older, but even more than just our age is kind of moving away from this North-centric, Anglo-centric understanding of gender and looking yeah. at a little bit more globally and going, actually, kind of ge- genders outside of this binary understanding have always existed all over the globe in indigenous cultures and have been, um, there's been an attempt to uh, eradicate them in language, in culture, um, in spirituality, in all sorts of ways, and yet... Yeah those gender identities and expressions have resisted in a lot of ways. And here we see a resurgence. So this is not new, if that makes sense. It's not new, it's a resurgence, exactly. Yeah. Um, Do we want to, the next question is to um, ask us about our own identities. Have we always identified as non-binary? Do you want to take that first? Sure. Um, No, I have not always identified as non-binary. I think um, Gender has always been rather confusing for me in a lot of ways, and I didn't really um, know the concept of transgender or non-binary growing up. I knew um, I would get really excited when people mistook me for a boy when I was a teenager, um, and I'm assigned female at birth, and it was a long time before I realized that that's not a common experience for all People who are female at birth, some people will be quite offended if they identify as girls at that time as teenagers. Um, And so for me, there was always something that didn't quite fit with the way that culture and society wanted to put gender on me, if that makes sense, like the way that I was expected to navigate the world and the clothes I was expected to wear. I I was expected to sit down, kind of all those things, but I didn't have a language. And then kind of in my late 20s, I started to encounter more language around gender queerness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had this kind of misunderstanding that gender queerness was uh, equal to androgyny. Um, yeah. Non-binary is different. And I didn't feel androgynous in a certain way. So my body didn't feel like it fitted in with um, a dominant image of androgyny that seemed to be pretty skinny, for example, and I'm not very skinny, that kind of, there was a lot of intersections there for me to mm-hmm. grapple with. So I kind of started with genderqueer, and then I went into identifying as trans, and, but trans men didn't fit either, so it would be more transmasculine. And finally, when this term non-binary, I think, started to become more and more visible, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm like, actually, my identity is non-binary, and my presentation, gender presentation is masculine but it's kind of a feminine masculinity. Uh, And actually, I think that writing the gender book with you, how to understand your gender, even Mm -hmm. in my understanding of my own identity, you know, as this kind of trans masculine, but semi-masculine non-binary person. So I would say that now I identify uh, that way. Wow, that was a long answer to a simple question. That's a good one. Um, I mean, again, it's this, this work in progress, isn't it? I guess we both wrote about how we identified in our genders in how to understand your gender. And I suspect that, you know, we'd write something a bit different today. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I first came across the kind of idea of people being 
sort of more than one gender in the same person. Um, some bi gender people, for example, who experience themselves as shifting between different genders. And I remember thinking that that did not sound like my experience and even sounded a bit weird, um, kind of when I first heard about it. But that is really where I've ended up is the sense of a plurality a plurality of selves and a plurality of genders and like the idea of people being plural selves is something that we've explored in life isn't binary yeah um, i'm really pleased to have been there because yeah i would say that my experiences of different sides of me being differently gendered um and i really like that I like that how there's parts of me that still feel quite woman mm-hmm. i was assigned female at birth but there's parts of me that feel very much man um, and parts of me that don't really feel that gendered at all and and being able to kind of identify those in myself has been a really ex- exciting part of the progress the process really um so the ongoing sense of a journey i guess with with gender mm-hmm. and and you also got a really great zin about plural selves that's available on your website right because i recommend yeah. to my clients all the time because i find this idea of plural selves so helpful Oh, I'm glad you like it. I really enjoyed writing that one. It's kind of a comic scene and it's yeah free to download on my Rewriting the Rules website. So if people want to check it out, they can do. It's just mm-hmm. such a great resource. I love it. And, uh, and I love this idea of like not being a singular self and, um, and you wrote about it in such an accessible way. <clears throat> and I think for me, this being non-binary is also about embracing all parts of myself. Like you said, yeah. they're far more complex than can be summarize in any one identity right that's right and that's why I think we particularly we felt passionate about this project really to expand this idea of non-binary way beyond just sexuality and gender which are the places that people are maybe familiar with thinking that something Mm -hmm. might be in between or both but actually to think about all these things in in non-binary ways Mm -hmm. so the next question is really about the new book Um, and and it says in your new book uh, you explore how non-binary thinking can be applied to multiple areas of life, like our bodies, emotions, and thoughts. Why do you think people are comfortable with the concept of non-binary sexualities, but struggle to apply non-binary thinking to these other areas of life? Do you want to get us started or on this? Yeah, I mean, I suppose... I suppose we then, but people aren't people aren't necessarily comfortable actually with non-binary genders or sexualities. I suppose that's the first thing to say. So when we talk about non-binary sexualities, I guess we're talking about the kind of things that people normally label as bisexuality or pansexuality or queer sometimes, something between or beyond gay and straight. Um, and yeah, like we say in the book, there's still a lot of biphobia and queer phobia. There's a lot of um, invisibility of bisexuality. So, and then the same with non-binary, there's lots of suspicion and kind of treating it as not a real thing, or as like you say, just a phase or a young people's mm-hmm. thing or a trendy thing. So, so yeah, it's not really massively that people are comfortable with it there. People really like binary thinking, it seems to be. <laughs> But at least they're aware of it. So, but whereas when we move on to talk about relationships and emotions and thinking and bodies, people aren't even used to thinking about the whole binary. Um, so we try and really go like unpack that in the book, I guess. Talk about what are the binaries? What are the binaries that you know kind of govern our thinking about bodies or about emotions? And we kind of unpack each of them. So like with emotions, the binary is like positive and negative feelings or like being mad or being sane. Or with bodies, there's like disabled or disabled or there's like um, well or sick, for example. And we kind of look at those binaries and also the hierarchies, right? That are mm-hmm. implicated in those binaries because usually one side of the binary is seen as more normal or better than the other. 
Yeah, and I've been thinking a lot about, you know, wh- why is it that we have this attachment to this binary thinking? In mm-hmm. And maybe it's because um, I'm writing this other book about actually two different books uh, through the lens of trauma. And I'm looking mm-hmm. at everything through the lens of trauma. And when I think about, um, you know, obviously, settler colonialism as a form of historical, um, social and cultural trauma, then I'm thinking about how trauma can... Um, lead to this kind of all or nothing patterns so it's like all or nothing is this or that it's either or like you're with us or you're against us right we are human and those other folks are less human therefore we can take their we can take um their uh their land and actually we can even understand the land as property and as something that can be taken or owned by people rather than being in relationship with it right so it's this kind of this, yeah, this kind of the separation, this othering, this um, uh, that happens, and this severing is that the word the cutting off of relationship between us and the rest of the world, whether it is the land, whether it is other people, um, and I think that that's create this dichotomy, this binary um, division um, yeah. in our culture that I think we're feeling in all sorts of ways in many many ways if that makes sense exactly and it just plays out everywhere it's like the the media Mm -hmm. kind of sees everything in terms of a debate between two sides which is something we talk about in the book and you know that's playing out um a lot sort of in terms of like okay what's the debate about trans well it's whether trans people exist or not you know Mm -hmm. and there's no kind of awareness that that having those binaries you know what the, what that does to people and the fact that that's you know there's not two sides to that debate and it's not it isn't a debate you know um so yeah i think that it's it, yeah like you say it's it's so ancient you know when you look at the history of gender which is something i've been doing for another project mm-hmm. it's just it goes back to you know agricultural revolution it goes back you know millennia so it's really really hard to shift it um but you know i think a lot of these um you know popularities of different ways of thinking um, and different identities are beginning to maybe start that shift in kind of Western cultures. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think there's a real kind of yearning to move beyond this kind of dichotomous binary um, thinking about ourselves, our bodies and relationships and our emotions. Mostly mm-hmm. because people, I think, are starting to see the damage of that, yeah. right? Um, kind of dividing really emotions, for example, into good or bad. It's mm-hmm. not really helpful. And I mean, I mean, this is happening even in popular culture. If you, you know, I'm thinking about the Pixar movie, The Inside Out, where yeah. a lot of the point of that movie is to uh, talk about how all the ba- basic emotions are needed for kind yeah. of um, a organic kind of development of self, you know, that we need, yeah. we need, uh, sadness we need joy and there's a lot of other things that could be said and like uh, the fat phobia that Pixar seems to be able not be able to take off in all their movies including Inside Out but there right. are things I really love about that movie around moving beyond this good or bad emotions kind of idea so I think it's kind of really seeping into popular culture in this ways that might not be as obvious but it's kind of yeah. happening would yeah, you? I think it's a bit ho- a little bit hopeful, and yeah, I think that's a it's a really good example, um, inside out of the way of seeing something more as plural rather than as a, a dichotomy or a binary of two things is is helpful as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
Ah, shall we move to the next question? Yeah, what's the next question? Ultimately, it can be argued that non-binary is still a label, just like gay or straight. Um, why do you think people are fixated on labeling themselves and others, which is a good statement oh. around what we were talking about, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. it's, I guess there's one thing to say about it. it's often, often when it comes to non-binary, then suddenly there's this accusation of why are you fixated with labeling yourself? And that frustrates me. You know, and even even heard queer scholars say, like, why are bisexual people and non-binary people fixated with labels? But then other way other places in the same talk they'll happily use labels like straight or lesbian or trans. And mm -hmm. it's like there's this almost this idea that somehow bisexual and non-binary people need to get beyond labels in a way that other people don't. So um, I think the problem is we live in a time that is very um, based on labels. So to expect some of the most marginalized and most invisible people to go without labels is, is you know, not, not very helpful. If we will get, you know, support, if you're gonna get healthcare, if you're gonna get rights, unfortunately at the moment, labels are necessary. You know, you need to use labels that the government understand if you're to say, hey, this is a group of people who need rights and recognition. Um, but I mean, broadly speaking, I agree with the idea that it would be good to get beyond labels in this, in the sense of like people's gender should not be so significant in terms of how they're treated for sure. But I think thinking that we can just like automatically leap there after millennia of patriarchy, it's, it's probably not going to happen. So perhaps this is a step along the way. I don't know. What do you think? I totally agree. And I think there's like this bypassing that people want to do. It's like, oh, it's fine that we labeled ourselves as like man or woman or straight or gay. And mm -hmm. don't even want to think about kind of less binary uh, labels like bisexual, pansexual, fluid. But, but now why do you all have to label yourselves, right? And it's kind of I see it as this form of bypassing of wanting to get to the goal before we are at the goal. But, you know, going back to the, the question of like, why are people fixated on labeling themselves and others? I also think that as humans, we're kind of um, storytelling, meaning making people and yeah. labels can be helpful in some ways. If I'm orienting myself to an environment, there is a piece of me that thinks like, who's like me and who's different from me? Where's safety, right? Where is comfort? Yeah. Um, and so labels can be helpful in kind of finding each other, finding community. Um, I just did an episode on language recently, and I, you know, I talked about kind of language and labels can help us find one another, and finding one another has been huge in terms of kind of um, being able to also create momentum in social justice movement for recognition yeah. of kind of yeah. full humanity and full citizenship. Um, for a lot of folks, including non-binary folks, right? So, yeah. like, yes, in an ideal world, maybe, maybe, um, I don't know if that's possible, given how our mind works, uh, there'll be no labels, but labels can be helpful. And what is it that is so threatening about this label of non-binary that there seems yeah. to be so much resistance to it um, in some ways, in a way that is, different from other labels right other labels seem to be more acceptable um in some ways yeah. and also i think this you know there's something about marginalization and labels as well it's like people are often um upset at marginalized groups for having labels and also upset at marginalized groups for labeling others so yeah. i guess words like heterosexual and cisgender you know often heterosexual and cisgender people have been annoyed at those kind of labels because they want to say well you know, I don't want to be 
seen as having a gender or having a sexuality, but we need to name, you know, we need to name the privileged ones, like we need to name whiteness, you know, because we can't really critically look at something until we have a name for it, for, for it. and so it's, it's really important in that sense as well, politically, I think. Absolutely, because otherwise it's like, we don't want to be labeled, it implies, because we are the default. And as long as we don't label <clears throat> what the default is, then we can't really kind of look at the whole idea critically, right? If mm -hmm. when we only label transgender and or non-binary people as having a gender, it means that the gender of cis folks gets unscrutinized and gets assumed as the norm and the default. But the whole idea is we want to kind of explore the whole landscape, we really need to have more specific terms that describe different identities and experiences and if those identities and experiences don't apply to people, they get to say that. I've also had a lot of exactly. people sometimes almost um, ask me permission as a non-binary person, like, I'm kind of non-binary, but I think I'm this, and I don't know. And I was like, I'm not the Pope of non-binary and or trans identities. <clears throat> I can't tell somebody what your identity is if you are questioning your gender identity or expression. That's totally okay. Yeah, you can, you can. I always just say to them, "Come on in. We need more people." Right? Like, yeah. Like, if you think it might apply to you, brilliant, excellent. We need more people, so come on in. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, if you identify as this, but you have a non-binary expression, or, um, or you have a non-binary identity, but like a more kind of cisgender expression in the world, that's that's fine. We can. Make well, exactly, and I think that's you know that we end up with these hierarchies even within communities about like who's trans enough and who's non-binary enough and who's queer enough, and you know often those are really problematic as well. But it's something we unpack in the in the book as well because mm -hmm. it's quite complex. You know, sometimes people kind of have a lot of privilege in the world and want to claim a more marginalized identity in a way that doesn't really interrogate their privilege it's almost like a way of opting out of having to do that interrogation whereas other times it's more like you know that that's a genuine experience that they have and they're even more invisible because they aren't seen as expressing it you know like if they're not visibly non-binary somehow they're seen as lesser so there's a real complexity around that isn't there oh yeah and we talk also about the complexity of intersectional identities, right? Because for some folks, for example, who have non-binary identities, it's safer to express those non-binary identities kind of visibly in the world. But for other folks, it's less safe. I've heard BIPOC, you know, um, Black, Indigenous, immigrant, people of color folks talk about how it is not as safe for them um, by and large in kind of Anglo-Western dominant culture to express non-binary identities in a visible way compared yeah. to for example. And so we have to be really cautious yeah. of judging anyone basically on these things. Yeah. yeah. And also really and also really interrogate where we're at in all of these intersections in terms of kind of privilege and oppression as well, rather than, you know, not like taking a label as a kind of just a way of bypassing that work. Mm -hmm. um, but also, yeah, really recognizing that we can't be judging anybody else's, you know, trans enough or queer enough status. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I think it is that piece of, I love when you, you often um, talk about what is this opening up and what is this closing down. And I know we put in our writing too, and that's one of the things I've learned from you, which I really love, um, which is this idea then with those labels, including non-binary label, what are the potentialities that we're opening up and what are the potentialities that we're closing down and yeah. the intentionality of choice. So we can use labels with intention, but still hold them with open hands, or we can grasp at them with everything we got 
And sometimes I find that when I do that, I want to keep other people out. I'll admit it. I have those moments where I'm like, oh, and this is not going to sound, this is not going to make me look good, listeners. And I'm sorry. <laughs> and I've totally had this moment of like, well, fine, you're identified as non-binary, but you don't look non-binary. And that's not going to be the same experience for you in the world. And I, and I thought, wow, look at that. What is going yeah. on inside you, Alex, that you feel you have to police the boundaries of this yeah. identity, which, by the way, is not just yours, so it doesn't belong to you. And yeah. oh, there's a complex set of reasons why people may feel safe or unsafe or even want to. Like, there's no one way of doing non-binary identities, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to look gender expansive or gender non-conforming to be non-binary. So there are those moments of what I call really internalized oppression, where for many of us brought up in kind of stellar colonial mentality, the idea that we can own anything, including our identity labels, and keep other people out, right? Uh, we fall back into that yeah 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 and i think you're right like that's one of our examples of the last chapter of the book when we're talking about thinking non-binary we just come up with a number of ways that people might try um you know to experiment with a different kind of thinking and i think open up what does it open up what does it close down is a nice both and option it's like the pretty much anything in the world will open up some things and close down others and it gets this idea that we can find you know perfect happy good right ways of doing things that will you know include absolutely everyone and always just be great and actually you know more more helpful to think yeah what does it open up and what does it close down maybe we try and follow the paths that open up more than they close down but recognizing there's an inevitability to some close down even when things open up and that way of thinking for me is more relational right it's it's um, because the other way of thinking of like, let's find the thing that's perfect, that's good, that's the best. And I think yeah. all of us can fall into that trap is actually part of settler colonial thinking. It's actually part of whiteness. And so moving more towards this both and relational way of knowing ourselves and others, I, I think it's so important. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know, I think it's a shift that's needed in the world, obviously, because we wrote about it. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, the the questions then go on to ask a number of questions about uh, relationships because we have the chapter on non-binary thinking about relationships I might try and like bring these together a bit like because there's quite a lot do we want to go through them all um, well first of all they say they, well, we, t- we talk in the relationship chapter I guess about we're, we're questioning the idea that there are only there are binaries in terms of love so like single versus couple monogamous versus non-monogamous friend versus lover mm-hmm. we're, you know we kind of unpack all these kind of binaries about what you know what's a pref- better kind of love and we're kind of saying that romantic love often gets privileged over other kinds of love mm-hmm. and then one of we do to challenge this is talk about the ancient greeks who had like seven different types of love that they recognized of all different kinds which is something i got from um justin hancock who i do my podcast with meg john and justin hi justin we miss you (laughs) (laughs) and um actually when you came on that podcast we talked about different kinds of love because we talked about the love that i have with both of you as my co-authors and then that that puts you in a metamorpho relationship with each other because you're kind of important to each other at a distance as well mm-hmm. yeah absolutely mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah it's just asking us to unpack that a little bit um like the kind of relationship that we have with each other and how that challenges the binary and also other ways of challenging the relationship binaries i love it let's go there so um 
Yeah, and one of the questions is like, why do, you, why do you think we prioritize romantic love to the detriment of other relationships and friendship? And I think the first thing I thought is like, well, who's the we? I think the we in this question is dominant culture, right? There is this right. idea that romantic love is superior to other kinds of loves, you know, that if, if we have to choose between kind of um, our partner and friends, our partner should come first. I think that's one of the ideas um, in in kind of uh, Anglo-dominant culture, but um, well, first of all, <laughs> actually, that's not how I was brought up. There's a lot of conflict when I was um, the way I was brought up in, in Italy, southern Italy, especially around the tension between romantic love and partners and family of origin. Because family of origin is incredibly important, right? And so it is not unusual to have intergenerational families living close to each other or living together or taking holidays together. And so this idea um, that romantic relationships are kind of superior is not universally or globally always true, right? So again, it's this very specific kind of cultural lens. Um, and I think that that is, um, for me, that's really important to think about is like, what is the cultural lens that we were brought up with? And are we even aware that there is a lens there or do we think that that's the world for everybody, right? Um, and when I think about this idea of like seven names for love, right, that the ancient Greeks have is because we do have lots of different kind of love. I, you know, I don't love uh, my child the same as I love pizza. You know, you yeah. have kind of this one word in English uh, for love. Pizza is really good, Alex, you've got to admit, you know. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> and I mean, I love your child, you know that, but. I know, and now I've got, <laughs> and I've been at home for several days because it's like minus thirty-four here in Minnesota. But oh, I no. love them more than pizza. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I yeah. think I love them more than pizza also. <laughs> Especially gluten-free pizza. Um, but yeah, so we got that. We we went on a little tangent with pizza because how can you not go on a tangent with pizza? But um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's what is the lens that we're coming from. And I love a lot of the work you've been doing, Mac John. I recommend, again, your work all the time to people I work with around uh, really not assuming that we understand what our relationship agreements are with one another, whether it's yeah. a partnerships or friendships of any kind, you know, the, all the work that you've done for writing the rules. So I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit here. Yeah, I guess like that was my starting point really was to question like, why do we put certain relationships above others? And it's not about saying, oh, well, we should put friendship above romantic relationship or family above, you know, it's like, just let's, let's think about it. You know, why, yeah, why this kind of bond worth more than that kind of bond? Um, and then, yeah, just like this idea of intentional relationships that Justin and I explore quite a lot of like, well, how do we make the relationship fit like the people involved rather than trying to push it into a certain model because that's what our kind of media idea is of this is what this kind of relationship is um that seems really important um so yeah just questioning all of those hierarchies really and um then helping people find their own way letting mm -hmm. each kind of love be what it is and let it be a work in progress i guess this is another way um of, of doing something non-binary is to see things as a kind of an ongoing work in progress so mm -hmm. in the same way that gender fluid people or some of them might see their gender as this ongoing journey maybe that is another way we could see relationships that may be a little more helpful because it allows for that flexibility and for change over time rather than the idea that they have to stay static and always mm -hmm. be the same yeah 
Absolutely. And I think it's also this idea that kind of romantic love trumps all. It's a um, pretty modern idea and it's a pretty culturally specific idea. Like I remember um, when I was in grad school, one of my close friends who was planning on an arranged marriage where she would have a say in it, but she really believed that that was a good way to go. And I, I agreed with her in, in a lot of ways in terms of the thoughtfulness that went into it. And maybe it was easy for me to agree to it because even in Sicily, um, there were still um, people who would arrange uh, relationships um, with the involvement of kind of family members to make sure um, that everybody's interests were kind of met. Um, yeah. This idea of like, why is it better to base like a long-term partnership on love rather than based on kind of um, more communal or community-based interests as well as kind of individual preferences, right? It's kind of almost yeah. kind of binary between individual and community and what's the best way to create our lives, right? So again, yeah. the idea of kind of questioning why do we assume that certain way of doing things or doing relationships are better than others automatically? Right. And I think, you know, that is, asks about our own relationship and it's just such a great example of this that helps mm -hmm. me to remain tethered to that idea is that, you know, yeah, like our relationship did start back in the day as a romantic, erotic one mm -hmm. um, and that didn't seem to work out so well for us. And then once we found this co-creative friendship and we connected in terms of projects and in terms of like like-mindedness and also in terms of the different expertises that we can bring together and find this shared point, um that that seemed to be a really good basis that we've just built and built and built on and it's a, mm -hmm. one of my most long-lived relationships that I have apart from the one with my sisters I guess that's a really close really genuine relationship yeah we've been in each other's lives for a really long time like we met when I was um, pregnant with my first kiddo who was now 15 and mm -hmm. yeah our, our romantic relationship was really short-lived compared to how long we've been kind of friends and then writing and creative partners, right? And um, and in some ways, if we had seen the end of that romantic relationship as a failure, we might yeah. have given ourselves the opportunity to really uh, go through the loss, stay with that, and kind of come to this place where we're like, oh, actually, these aspects of our relationship are really beautiful and creative. Um, yeah. And, and here we still are really connected and, you know, still in each other's lives, which I think is beautiful. Um, yeah, and, and we come a long way. You know, remember when we thought we could do all the things and juggle all the things and maybe we couldn't. <laughs> I mean, so we're not both trying to like do a podcast and publish several books and like also see clients and... <laughs> You know, I'm staring at, I don't know what you're talking about. I <laughs> guess some exactly. things change, some things don't change. I don't know. More things changed and what they stay the same. No, I think, um, well, our next book is going to be on self-care, Alex. So we're going to have to look at this one very, very closely, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. I mean, obviously, we write about things we struggle with, dear listeners. Your message is your message. That's what they say. The message is your message. I love that. So now right. you're my secret. Our mess is our message. So yeah. writing about something and we seem very wise is probably because we're really struggling with it and kind of messing yeah. up my left and center. Exactly. That's the big. <laughs> okay. I think we should move on to bodies because I'm just aware of time. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It says in the book, you just, you explore how bodies are defiant of the binary. Could you expand on this? 
Yes. Oh, there's so much to say. I feel like maybe we should have done several episodes because I'm going after what Oh, but there are so many good questions about relationship still. But yes, we should probably move towards bodies. Although those are also connected too, I think. Um, So yes, um, bodies are defined for the binary, I think, because our bodies are this amazing landscapes that are so much more complex than any binary understanding or thinking that we want to put on them, right? It's kind of... Um, even when we talk about mind over matter, well, where's our brain? Our brain is our body. Our brain is an organ in our body. And now we know that our brain is only one place where there are all this nervous system connection. There's a bunch of nervous system connection in our gut. You know, there are new theories like Stephen Forge's polyvagal theory, these connections in our spine. Our bodies are kind of um, like this beautiful um, resistant landscape and territory where they will not be confined into the small binaries. Um, and in a way, I think when we try to confine our bodies into the small binaries of like sick or healthy, you know, fat or thin, uh, mm-hmm. working or not working, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. It's, it's kind yeah. of our bodies are so much more... Um, much more expansive i think that's the word i'm looking for which is why i thought maybe there was also a little bit of a connection between bodies um and relationship and kind of all of this idea about how we do relationship is often a desire to contain and categorize in the same way in which we have a desire to contain and categorize maybe much more expansive than any of our categories yeah absolutely which is kind of what we say about gender as well it's like yeah this idea of expansive is a really good one but again it's so often limited by the kind of capitalist culture that pervades in the west at the moment yeah and Um, i think that capitalist culture is a good point because even kind of going back back up to some of the questions um from jessica kingsley around um, one of them was why do you think single is still, still seen as a taboo or undesirable option? Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of what is it that we see as legitimate or legitimate? And in some ways, this idea that um, being single is not as desirable has a lot to do with kind of bodies and who is supposed to take care of our bodies or who's supposed as we sorry i'm podcasting at the moment (laughs) (laughs) it's been an interruption with a dog oh i love it it's kind of this is very much live even though you're not live and expensive in my room with a dog yes she decided to have a bark and now she wants to go on a walk (laughs) thanks (laughs) that's okay okay we're good we're good dogs cannot be contained by the limits they can't they really can't yeah (laughs) <laughs> um, I don't know. I was going on a tangent, so probably the dog could stand there and was like, stop, Alex, just stop there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, yes. So we were talking about bodies and relationships and genders and generally humans being so yes. much more expansive than any binaries. <laughs> exactly, and how capitalism is one of the forces that often yeah. tries to limit that, yeah. Yeah, capitalism likes to make our bodies i think into commodities and our body is the commodity that is to be traded you know our capacities our bodies our time uh our energy our physical and emotional efforts then everything is monetized and everything needs to be categorized to be monetized 
Um, and it's this before after binary often that's promised, isn't it? It's like we can turn you from fat to thin or ugly to beautiful or poor to rich. Wow. You know, yeah. It thrives on these kind of binaries and offering the promise of, yeah, sad and happy. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, they're, they're all based on problematic binaries in the first place. Absolutely. You know, it's like take this and you'll be desirable and you won't be single, which is undesirable, right? All those things are kind of connected. Or take mm-hmm. a pill and you won't be sick, you won't have a cold anymore, and you can take care of your children while also going to work while never being sick, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. It's like when I, I do this too, like I can't be sick, I'm too busy, and my body's like, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's yeah. That works, right? <laughs> yes, we'll see how that works out for you. Yeah, but still every time. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, you can't step outside of culture. Exactly, you can't step outside yeah. of culture, that's right. <laughs> right oh, we can talk about the slowdown pages they have asked about those as well mm-hmm. they say throughout the book you have included reflection points where you invite the reader to take some time out or engage in a reflective activity what was our thinking behind that and that came from you you came up with that idea for our first book together how to understand your gender right yeah i did so one of the things i i do in my life is also being a somatic experiencing practitioner uh, which means basically as a therapist, I pay a lot of attention to the all of ourselves and our bodies. And even talking about our bodies as it's not us, it's a little bit weird, but language is complex. So I do believe we are our bodies. And you might have noticed that we do have a tendency in kind of getting lost in the world of our ideas and just freewheeling in the world of our ideas. And so even for ourselves, let alone for the readers, I think to just be going, the breath yeah <laughs> and let's slow down and bodies are so much slower than our prefrontal cortex and so having a minute to be like let's slow down let's really see how those ideas are settling what mm-hmm. is up can you do something that really um helps you take care of yourself you might have some feelings about this you know we're talking in some ways about ideas that are counter cultural in terms of dominant culture and so I think the thinking was really to create a little bit of an oasis for readers. And you don't have to do it. One of my partners hates the slowdown pages. <laughs> when they read the first, the first draft of How to Understand Your Gender, they were like, the book is okay, but the slowdown pages, I don't, lo- I don't like them at all. Yeah, so not for everyone. Right? They don't have to love them. You don't even have to use them. But they're there as an opportunity to slow down, to reflect, um to take care of yourself i know when i get excited i even forget to go to the bathroom i know it seems so basic um but i'm so excited i'm talking about something and i'm not taking care of my basic needs and again it fits with the non-binariness because i guess some cognitive psychologists have argued that when we think fast we tend to go to those habitual responses which would include really binary thinking either or us and them etc whereas if we can slow down and be more mindful and more reflective that may enable us to see the complexity but certainly my experience is that I'm much more likely to see the complexity for example in a conflict if I can slow down and take my time around it and reflect than if I'm just and, and if I'm more in my body as well if I'm embodied rather than um, if I'm very much in my head and very much kind of trying to move at a pace and get it all fixed. Absolutely and from a trauma perspective that also really helps too because I can be coming more from a place of reactivity where kind of my yeah. limit- system is freaking out and I'm reacting to feeling threatened or I'm reacting to my fear of abandonment but actually when I slow down I get 
see what's mine and where I'm coming from and I can give my prefrontal cortex time to come back online and it's, it's creating that pause that gives us an opportunity to be more intentional basically and so we were trying to create that pause in the book that gives people an opportunity to both digest the content of the book but also be more intentional in how they want to relate to the content of the book. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then they ask, uh, what's the main point we'd like readers to take away from this discussion and from the book? Oh, yes. Oh, didn't they also ask how do you think non-binary thinking oh, can improve listening? Sorry. I've, 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 leapt, one. I've leapt ahead. I just keep leaping ahead. So I'm thinking too much. Like, slow down. <laughs> slow slow down. <laughs> how do we think non-binary thinking could improve listeners' lives? Yes. And that, that's when we take a pause, a pregnant yeah. pause while we think about it. What do you think, McJohn? Wow. I mean, I think that conf conflict um, and suffering were the two big ones that came up for me, which is kind of like all of the struggles of human existence when you think about it. And like, I feel like non-binary thinking is heavily implicated in both conflict and suffering. So when we are struggling with ourselves or with another person or people i think we're often much more drawn into non-binary thinking um you know so us and them thinking like it's all their fault and not my fault or it's all my fault and not their fault but it's like we polarize into these opposites and we try and either figure out how we're in the right or we kind of go the other way and decide we're all wrong and either way it causes suffering for ourselves and the other person so there's a lot of binary and conflict and then you know, in our struggles with ourselves as well, I think we can easily go between I'm a good person versus I'm a bad person and always being stalked by that kind of fear that maybe we're bad underneath. And again, the, the way we understand the self as relational, as embodied, as plural, you know, that actually gets away from that idea that we could even be all good or all, or all bad. It doesn't make any sense. So I think, yeah, the binary thinking underlying uh, conflict and suffering and that, um, finding it just experimenting playing and shifting habits to more non-binary forms of thinking can be really good for alleviating some of that i i completely agree and the only thing i would i would add it's not even an addition i think you already said it but the way i think about it is that non-binary thinking really helps us be more relational more relational with ourselves as seeing ourselves as part of kind of broader humanity more relational yeah. with one another it kind of helps us to stay in relationship it helps us even to stay in relationship with a broader um what i would call the broader web or network of life right if i'm yeah. binary i'm not thinking about me and the land as separate i'm thinking about me and the land as being in relationship I'm thinking about me and the food I consume as being in relationship. I'm thinking of myself and the rest of life as being part of an ecosystem. So for me as a systemic therapist and as a systemic thinker, non-binary thinking is essential to staying in relationship within this, uh, this, much, this beautiful ecosystem, which makes my life so much better when I can stay in relationship with that, uh, that yeah. way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's the challenge of this kind of thinking as well, because it goes so far for, for me beyond sexuality or gender. It's like we can't, for me, I, I can't really think non-binary about those things and not start to see all those other areas as well. And that really challenges me to relate differently to other, other species, to the planet, um, mm -hmm. to the people who I might think of as the other mm -hmm. um, different to me so I think it's kind of a, a challenging journey 
as well as a really rewarding one. Absolutely. Sort of, sort of same journey towards the towards less individual suffering, but also towards being implicated, hopefully, in less suffering from a kind of social justice perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a good segue into the, the other question that we were going towards, which is what is the main point that we'd like readers to take away from the book? And from I mean, I think that's the, that's the, that would be the secret point that we've hidden, which is the answer to life, the universe and everything. And we've, we've hidden it carefully in the book so that you'll have to read the whole thing, right? Uh, to, to get that point. Isn't that the answer at 42? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think Douglas Adams already came up with that one. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we've said what, what the main point is for us for this kind of this, yeah, this, for me, it's this relational, we're part of an ecosystem and yeah. non-binary thinking really helps us move in that direction um, collectively, not just individually. Yeah. Which means that the implication of that is that we have to learn to value all bodies, all lives, mm. all labor you know, all of these things, we need to, to, to value them all equally rather than having these kind of binary hierarchies which value some over others, right? Exactly. And, and we need to do that without bypassing the fact that we live in kind of oppressive yes. systems currently. Because I think often there is this kind of form of social justice or spiritual bypassing where we want to be at the, at the end goal, you know? Yeah. It's like, no, it's this paradox where, yes, uh, we want to value all of that, and we need to acknowledge that at the moment that's not where we are. And so, centering more marginalized and oppressed voices is actually essential to that process of kind Big of valuing, um, yeah. all lives and all bodies. Mm-hmm. Which oh, is good, yeah. good segue to the final question, which is if if people want to shift their thinking in more non-binary direction, what's the first thing they should do? So I guess that's seeing it as a kind of stepping stone approach rather than you could just leap into some non-binary utopia overnight. Um, right. I was going to be really terrible and self-promoting. I was like, that should read our book. No. Read our book. <laughs> our I'm a terrible person. I, I hate capitalism, but we're leaving capitalism. Really. I know. Well, this is the tension. It's, we're playing out right now, right now between us. I think, um, I guess compassion, kindness would be my first thought. Like that's pretty much the first step on every journey in this realm. Like you can't get very far until you're, kind to yourself um that's a lifelong journey that's a struggle i think we both still struggle with that but um yeah that would be my first stepping stone on the way to non-binary thinking i completely agree i you know i often say that if i have a magic wand and there's just one thing that all of my therapy clients could take away from any of the work we do together is the capacity for self-compassion because it's such a such a challenge and i know for me what i've experienced is that um acceptance for me, it needs to come before the comes before compassion. So that that piece of that Buddhist piece around radical acceptance. So radical acceptance of self. This is who I am. This I'm a human, and this is my history, and this is what happened to me. And I really want people to understand, though, that acceptance is not resignation. Resignation is passive, but acceptance is active. I think acceptance is what moves us towards the possibility of action and compassion. But if I don't accept who I am and uh, what my legacy is in terms of intergenerational, historical, cultural legacy, um, what I carry within me from my ancestors, both in terms of trauma 
but also in terms of wisdom. And if I can accept that, and if I can accept others for where they're at, um, then there is the possibility for action and compassion, which is much greater than if I try to deny what is, if that makes sense. So much sense. That's, yeah, that's spot on. And I guess just always want to underline to listeners how much that's an ongoing struggle for everyone, that it's not uneasy. It's like the first stepping stone and also the last stepping stone because like it's going to take a while to get there or if you even get there fully. But like it's a good thing to be aspiring to and trying to practice in daily life and then not beating yourself up when you find it hard. No, just being really kind in that journey. And I mean, it's called a practice for a reason, which is try to do this every day. And I'm nowhere near that level of acceptance that I long for, for and yeah. as well as for myself, for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. So that that was quite a bit, but is there anything else that we'd like to discuss? We've been asked. Is there anything else? I think that gives a pretty good sense of the book and what people are going to get. I really yeah. hope that people enjoy it and want to engage with it. We'd yes. love to hear from people. Like if you want to tweet us when you've read it, or yeah, that would be great. I mean that that's definitely one of my great joys in life to know how my content is landing for people. You know that oh, one best. of the. I really, really love um, about writing more uh, outside of academia and not being in academia anymore. It's just really, how is this whole landing for people and being able to have this level of vulnerability and kind of weave the more personal and theoretical and kind of just put it out there and see if it resonates for other folks, really. Definitely. That's, it's all about connection, that interconnection you were talking about. For me, that's what, I, that's what writing is for, is like the joy of like, some words I've written connecting with somebody else and maybe enriching their lives a little bit or soothing them a little bit. Like that seems to be the point to me. So yeah, it's great to hear from people. Um, and to see, I love, I love it when people tweet like a picture of the book and scribble notes in it and it's like, Oh, that's the best. Yep. It is the best feeling. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, they can listen to your podcast. Uh, listeners who are not familiar with your podcast could listen to gender stories. And listeners who are not familiar with your podcast could listen to the Mac, John and Justin podcast, which I think it's very fabulous. Yes, I think yours is too. I think they're amazing and complimentary and awesome. And we love having each other on each other's podcast. So you'll find some episodes of Gender Stories. One episode already has Mac, John as a guest and it's a wonderful episode. So check it out. Writing Vulnerably, Living Vulnerably, if I remember the um, mm. episode title correctly and I'm in a couple of episodes of Mac John and Justin and you can also read our books Mac John has many books that you can find on their website rewriting the rules mm-hmm. together we have how to understand your gender a practical guide for exploring who you are as well as life isn't binary coming out in May but remember that you can ask your library your favorite independent bookseller or um, pre-order it online and yes, and then watch out for a wonderful workbook on self-care coming out in 2020 with Just Getting Sleep Publisher. And then talking about sustainability, Gender Stories now as a Patreon that you can find at patreon.com slash gender stories. Oh, yeah. um, so total shameless plug for sustainability and relationship. <laughs> nice. I'm going to have my own Patreon very soon because I'm going self-employed, so I'm going to need that as well. So yeah, that's, uh, it's a great thing. That's real. We need to support ourselves and each other. So I look forward to letting everybody know you have a Patreon. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. you have one out, Mac John. <laughs> and 
And we would also like to thank uh, Jessica Kingsley Publisher as, um, as our publisher for How to Understand Your Gender and also for Life is in Binary. Um, they've been doing an amazing work of really promoting trans and or non-binary voices and seeking oh, yeah. authors and supporting um, authors, both new and experienced authors. Um, so thank you, Jessica. Thank yeah, you. I keep, they keep sending me like new ones to read and they're just fantastic. I just read an amazing one for on therapy for trans and non-binary people by Sam Hope, which is coming out in the next couple of months, which is just brilliant. Um, and yeah, there's so many in that, like just go and look at all of their books on trans because there's just so many wonderful ones in that. Yeah, they have a really wonderful kind of gender diversity list. So I really encourage you yeah. to check it out. And um, until we meet again for our next episode, take care of yourselves and one another and uh, try to hold um, as much of your thinking with open hands and see how that goes. <laughs> Bye now. Bye.